Well, a very pleasant good morning to each one of you. It is always a blessing and a joy that we have each week as we begin a new week in our lives to assemble together as God's people, to think about God, especially upon this day, to honor Him, to worship Him in song and in prayer, in remembrance of His eternal love for us as He showed that to us through His Son, Jesus the Christ, and to open His Word together and to consider some good and wonderful truths that God has revealed to us therein. The month of February is probably for many people, at least in our country, perhaps known as the month of love. Uh, Many of us celebrate Valentine's Day, whether we are married or dating someone, have a significant other in our life that we perhaps show in some uh, way uh, an expression of love uh, to that particular person. But the month of February is the month of love, especially for me, because it is the month that uh, Anna and I got married. Uh, Last Friday, we celebrated 16 years of marriage. And so we usually don't do very much for Valentine's Day because a couple of weeks later is our anniversary. Uh, In the month of February, I'm usually thinking about marriage. And so we're going to have a lesson this morning about marriage. And it's not just because it's my anniversary this month, but uh, also it is because we've had a couple of young uh, folks here that have recently gotten engaged, and uh, marriage is the next thing in line for them. But I think it's good for all of us from time to time to think about uh, what God's Word has to say to us about marriage. You know, of all the earthly relationships that God has created, I believe marriage stands above the rest. It was the first relationship that God created when he created the heavens and the earth. And yet, even though it was the first relationship that God made, God designed marriage, as the Bible tells us. He designed it to last a lifetime. He designed it to be something that would be permanent as far as this earthly life is concerned. As we think about marriage, as we think about how the Bible presents marriage to us in the Word, we understand that this relationship stands above all else because I believe it mirrors the relationship that God was really wanting all of us to experience whether we ever get married or not in this life, and that is the relationship that exists between Christ and the church. Marriage is to be a mirror, a reflection, if you will, of the relationship that exists between Christ and the church. And the relationship of marriage, at least in my mind, stands above every other relationship because it forms the foundation for all other human relationships. Without that fundamental relationship of marriage, there, is, there are no other relationships among us as people. Very simply put, I would say, that marriage is the crowning jewel of, to God's crown of creation, us, people, who are made in His image. And yet as great of a gift as marriage is, we may sometimes wonder why God created that relationship, what the purpose of that relationship is, how we can find true meaning in marriage. So this morning we want to turn our attention to this most wonderful of God-given relationships as we think about some things that Scripture says to us about meaningful marriage. If you're in the audience this morning, as I know a number of our folks are, 
that are not married. Perhaps you have been married in the past and maybe your spouse died. Perhaps you have been married in the past and divorce has occurred in your marriage. There may be a number, especially among our younger crowd, that have never been married, that are single. I hope that there is something in this lesson that can be of benefit to you. And somewhere down the road in the future, we may do a lesson or two, particularly geared toward those who are single, who maybe don't, have not been married or don't even desire to be married. You can still serve God without being married. But today we're focusing on marriage and what the Bible says to us about meaningful marriage. As we think about marriage and its true purpose, we, we want to ask some questions as we have already asked. Why, why did God create marriage? What, what is to be the purpose of this relationship of marriage? If I am a married person, what should marriage be doing for me and my spouse? And as we think about those three questions, I think are very common questions. They are questions that all of us ask whether we are married or not. I want to give you, first of all, three common answers perhaps that we may give if someone asks us those questions or maybe if we've asked those questions ourselves, some answers that we may have been given to why God created marriage. First of all, we might say that God created marriage for companionship, that this is God's way for us to have a true companion for life. And as we're going to, to notice here in just a moment, even from the very beginning of Scripture in Genesis chapter 2, that these purposes or reasons for marriage are given here. But I'm wanting you to think this morning about, did God create marriage just for companionship? Is that the true, real meaning or purpose in marriage? Is that what I'm supposed to get out of marriage if I am a married person and that's it, is just companionship? Someone might say in answer to one of those three questions, well, marriage is for procreation, that God designed this, this relationship in order to have children. As some might say, well, the purpose of marriage is for sexual fulfillment, that God has said in his infinite wisdom that our sexual needs and desires are to be fulfilled in this relationship of marriage. As you think about these three answers, of course, we can find these answers in Scripture, I believe. There is no doubt in my mind that God created marriage so that man would not be alone. Isn't that what the inspired writer of Genesis chapter 2 and verse 18 says to us, that God created man and he, he put the animals before him and gave him the, the charge or the task, the work of naming all those animals, but there was not one who could, whom he could find among all of God's animal creation that was like him. And he needed a companion that was suitable for him so that he would not be alone. There's no doubt in my mind, as Genesis chapter 1 and verse 28 tells us, that God gave men and women really, as far as I know, the first words or the first instruction that God spoke to his creation that was made in his image and according to his likeness is that men and women were to be fruitful. They were to multiply. They were to fill the earth and subdue it. They were to be involved in this process of procreation. And as we look again at Genesis chapter 2, verses 24 and 25, the very end of that chapter, there's no doubt in my mind that God gave this relationship of marriage to us as people so that men and women, one man and one woman for life, entering into this relationship could freely express themselves sexually, that they were to leave their father and mother to cleave to one another, and the two of them shall become one flesh. There's a, a lot that's involved in that 
phrase, I believe, of becoming one flesh, but one thing that is involved is the sexual union that occurs in marriage. And so, yes, there is companionship in marriage. Yes, there is to be procreation if we are able to do that physically. Yes, there is to be a sexual fulfillment in this relationship. But I'm asking you this morning, are any of these, or even all of these, the ultimate aim of marriage? And for a husband and wife, whoever they are, but especially for a husband and wife who are both Christians, I would say this is not why God created marriage. This is not the true purpose that God had in mind. For us to find out what his true purpose is, we need to go to the passage in the book of Ephesians that our brother Kerry read for us just a few moments ago. In Ephesians chapter 5, we're not going to take the time again this morning to read this entire section. I think many of us know this passage very well. We, we often turn to Ephesians chapter 5, the last half of this chapter, and I think rightfully so. To, to refer to this text, we turn to Ephesians chapter 5 when we are talking about marriage, when maybe we as a, a married couple are studying marriage together, when maybe we're giving some kind of counsel or advice to another married couple or a couple who is about to be married soon, or whether we're talking to just our friends family, neighbors, co-workers in the world that aren't Christians about what God has to say about the relationship of marriage, that we often turn to Ephesians chapter 5. And we use this text to talk about marriage. But I want you to notice here that Paul makes it abundantly clear. He speaks for a number of verses about the husband-wife relationship, about this great relationship that God has established, that he has created. But he says at verse 32, this mystery is great. But I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Paul just makes it abundantly clear here that his emphasis in Ephesians 5, 22 through 33 is not so much on marriage. His emphasis is on the Christ-church relationship. And again, that marriage ought to mirror the most important marriage, the marriage that we may enter into in this life with a husband or a wife that earthly marriage ought to mirror the most important marriage that there is of Christ and his bride, the church. So, so what is it that exists in this spiritual marriage? What is it that exists in the relationship between Christ and the church that God wants to exist in every physical marriage between man and woman? And as you read through this, this section here, this text here, there are a number of things that jump out. There is submission that there is respect, that there is sacrifice, there is surrender, there is service to one another. But all of that, I believe, is summed up in the idea of love. That in the Christ-Church relationship, there is a mutual love that Christ so loved the church that he gave himself for us. And we as the church are to so love Christ by honoring Him and pleasing Him and doing His will. There is mutual love that exists. Love is the thing, it is the attribute, it is the characteristic that is supporting and permeating every aspect of the Christ-Church relationship. And so it is that which upholds, that which supports, that, that which finds its way into every facet of the husband-wife relationship as well. We're often quick to point out from this passage, and this is what Paul says, obviously, there verse 22, that wives are to be subject to their own husbands, 
and that husbands are to love their wives. And although Paul doesn't explicitly say here to wives that you are to love your husbands, I believe it is very much implied. (laughs) If you are going to be a, a wife who is submitting to your husband's will, submitting to your husband's leadership, submitting to your husband's spiritual direction and headship, you have to love your husband. And he just does make it very clear to those of us who are husbands that we have been commanded to love our wives and not just to love our wives in any way that we want to, but to love our wives following the example of Christ as he loved the church. But all throughout this passage, I think there's maybe five or six times, in fact, that Paul uses the word love. This idea of mutual love is just running throughout this whole text. While God certainly did create marriage for many good reasons, I believe its true purpose, especially for those of us who are His children, is to teach us true love. And it is to allow us, husband and wife, to experience true love in a way that we cannot experience that in any other relationship in life. We are to experience this characteristic that the Apostle Paul devoted almost an entire chapter to in the New Testament in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, where he comes to the end of the conclusion of that whole thought about love. And he says, love is the greatest of all. Love is going to endure forever. It is the greatest attribute of all. It is this kind of love that the Apostle John spoke of in 1 John when he said this is the very essence of who God is. It's not just the fact that God loves. Yes, he does that. But he makes it very clear to us in that book that God is love. It is the very essence, the very core of who he is. And so in marriage... God uses that relationship to teach us true love, a love that he desires mirrors or reflects the love that exists between Christ and the church. God wants us to experience that true love in our marriages. And so in order for us to experience meaningful marriage, we must experience what I call the three loves of meaningful marriage. And that's what we want to think about for the rest of our time together this morning. Number one, in order for us to have a a marriage that truly is meaningful, that really has purpose as God intended for it to have, we must have a love for God himself. I want you to go to the Gospel of Matthew for just a moment. This is probably a a very familiar scripture to to all, if not uh, too many, if not all of us here this morning. In Matthew 22, uh, after the Sadducees have come to Jesus and they tried to stump him with this question, ironically, uh, kind of about uh, marriage and the resurrection and all of that kind of thing. And the Pharisees are standing back and they're looking, they're listening to the answer that Jesus gave. And we pick up the reading there at verse 34 of Matthew 22. Matthew says to us at that verse, when the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered themselves together. One of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him, Teacher, what is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. And the second is like it, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend or hang the whole law and the prophets. Jesus, in answering this man's question, and again, Matthew tells us just like the Sadducees, they 
they really, this man, I don't know, really was wanting to know the answer to this question. He was just trying to stump Jesus, trying to back Jesus into a corner, use Jesus' answer to his question against him in some way in the future. Jesus knew his motives, I'm sure. But he still took the opportunity to speak to this man and to us about what is the great commandment? What, what is the first and the foremost commandment of all? And Jesus got very specific with this man. He says to love God with all of our heart, with all of our mind, with all of our soul. I think in Mark's account of this conversation, he adds there with all of our strength. <laughs> Basically, Jesus was giving an answer to this man, his question and saying that loving God with all of our being really is at the foundation of who we are. Lo loving God with all of our being is the foundation for our lives. It is the foundation for all that God has said, for all that God has done. Everything else that we read in this book that we call the Bible, every other instruction that we see, every, other, every example that is given for us to learn from, all goes back to this fundamental command or instruction or principle that we are to love God with all of our heart. In essence, Jesus may be saying that loving God with our whole being is really what life is all about. If you want to know why we are here, we are here to love God with all of ourselves. Well, what does that look like? What does wholehearted love for God look like in the relationship of marriage? We could get a, give a lot of specifics, I guess, this morning. But I, again, I just kind of want to hit a principle here, and then you can make some specific applications to yourself or to your own marriage if you're married. From the Gospel of John, in John chapter 14, is Jesus was giving some final instructions to the 11 at this point before he is about to be crucified. In John chapter 14, he spoke about this connection between loving God and doing God's will. In John 14 and verse 15, another famous passage, I'm sure, to many of us, Jesus said here, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. That's not the only thing he said about that. Drop down to verse 21. He goes on to say, he who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. Also from verse 23, Jesus said, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our abode with him. Jesus hits on this point of love for God, and I believe he tells us in these three passages what, what it truly means for us to love God. What does that look like practically in our lives? What that looks like is being obedient servants to his. What that looks like is submitting our will to his will. What that looks like is doing his commandments in our life. He says, if you truly say that you love me, this is how you show that you love me, by keeping my commandments. And the one who keeps my commandments, the one who does my commandments, is the one who is showing by his life, by his actions, that he truly does love me. And verse 23 again, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. That applies to our entire lives as Christians this passage here, Jesus is not obviously not talking to his disciples about marriage, but he is talking to them about their need to love God and what that means. As we take what Jesus said here in these three passages, I want to connect it to something that the Apostle John wrote 
in his first epistle on this same uh, thought. In 1 John chapter 3, beginning at verse 18, 1 John 3 and verse 18, as John has again gone back to this idea of love and Jesus showing his love for us by laying down his life on the cross and how we as Christians, as brothers and sisters in Christ, must follow his example and lay down our lives for one another. He says there at verse 18, Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. We will know by this that we are of the truth and will assure our heart before him in whatever our heart condemns us, for God is greater than our heart and knows all things. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do the things that are pleasing in his sight. Ken, John is not saying anything different than Jesus said back in his gospel. That if we truly love God, we are going to be people who are keeping his commandments. Does that mean that we're perfectly keeping the commandments of God? No, we all know that. (laughs) That there are going to be times when we sin. There are going to be times when we fail to do something God wants us to do. We fail to be the kind of person that God wants us to be or we fall short. We don't do something that God has instructed us to do. As you think about this principle of loving God with our whole being, And then take that and relate it to the marriage relationship. Here here is my takeaway from these few passages. That it is not enough for us as husbands and wives to just say that we love God. It is not enough for us to sing sometimes as we do. That we love God. If we truly love Him, we are going to show it by keeping God's commandments We are going to show it by living lives that are pleasing to Him. And especially as married folks, husbands and wives, that we're going to especially make sure that we are keeping the commandments, the instructions that pertain to marriage in passages like Ephesians chapter 5. That we're going to carry out those instructions in our marriage. When one or both spouses do not love God, I would suggest to you that our marriage is not going to have the kind of meaning and purpose that God intends for us to have. But when both spouses are doing that, when both spouses are loving God with their whole being, we will have a meaningful marriage. We will enjoy all the blessings and benefits that God intended for us to enjoy in this great relationship. The second love of meaningful marriage is we need to have a love for one another. When both husband and wife are loving God, I believe this will be the natural result, that we will just naturally love one another. And I believe that's a part of what Jesus meant, if you go back at least in your mind to that passage that we began with in Matthew chapter 22 just a few moments ago, where Jesus gave the answer to the the scribe's question, what is the great foremost commandment of all? It is to love God with all of our being, but it's also secondly as an extension of that love for God, to love our neighbor as ourselves. What what does mutual love look like in our marriages? Just consider a few passages from the New Testament with me for a moment. Going to that scripture that we mentioned a moment ago in the great passage or chapter of love in the New Testament in 1 Corinthians 13, beginning at verse 4, the Apostle Paul gives us I believe, a beautiful picture of what love truly is. He says to us in verse 4 that love is patient, love is kind and is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant, does not act unbecomingly, 
It does not seek its own, it's not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. Here is what true love for one another looks like in every relationship of life. But especially as we're thinking this morning about the marriage relationship. Paul says to us here in this text that true love for one another, husband for wife and wife for husband, it looks like patience with one another. How many of us need to work on patience in our marriage? He says true love looks like kindness toward one another, that we're not just speaking kind words and thinking kind thoughts to our husband or our wife, But the word kindness really is the idea of doing something that is beneficial for them. We are looking for ways that we can help them, benefit them. Paul says that true love looks like selflessness, not selfishness in a marriage, but it looks like selflessness. He says it looks like humility. That we're not all puffed up that I'm right and you're wrong and I'm going to show you how wrong you are and how right I am. But we're practicing humility one toward another. He says true love for one another looks like integrity. He says it looks like self-control. He says it looks like forgiveness. I I don't remember a whole lot of what my father-in-law said. And my father-in-law is a preacher as well. And uh, he talked to Anna and I before we got married. uh, And he, he performed our wedding ceremony. We have our wedding on DVD. Our kids, I don't know, for whatever reason, like to pull it out every once in a while, I guess to laugh at us or something. I don't know. (laughs) If we didn't have that DVD, I I couldn't remember the things that he said. But I do remember one thing that he said to us, either in counseling us or in our ceremony. He said that a great marriage is made up of two good forgivers. And after 16 years, I've come to understand that he truly is right. And the Apostle Paul is saying to us in this description, this picture of marriage, that true, mar- true love for one another, or this picture of love, that true love for one another looks like forgiveness. That we are asking forgiveness when we have sinned and we are giving forgiveness. He says this true love for one another looks like joy. And it looks like faith and it looks like hope and it looks like perseverance that we're never going to give up on one another. We're never going to give up on this wonderful relationship that God has created for our good, for our benefit, so that we could experience true love that is himself. He is love. This is what true love from one another looks like. Some similar thoughts maybe in the book of Colossians in chapter 3. In Colossians chapter 3, beginning at verse 12, again, this is not a marriage passage. In fact, this is a one another passage about how we are to treat one another and get along with one another in the body of Christ. But Ephesians chapter 5 again, marriage is to reflect the relationship that exists in the body of Christ. Colossians 3 and verse 12 beginning, Paul says, So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. 
Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. Wives, verse 18, be subject to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be embittered against them. Paul, again, gives us a a great description, a a beautiful picture of, of love within the body of Christ. So we take these attributes and we apply them to marriage. Mutual love within a marriage looks, again, some similar words and thoughts that we read about in 1 Corinthians 13. It looks like compassion toward one another. It looks like showing gentleness toward one another. It looks like being at peace and pursuing peace together as a couple. It looks like having true knowledge that is the knowledge that comes from Jesus Christ. It is having this attitude of thanksgiving. It is showing obedience to God's will, both of us. It is submission. Yes, in a very special way. This is a whole nother lesson. (laughs) Wives submitting to their husbands. But if you go back to the passage we started with in Ephesians chapter 5, if you look at the verse preceding where we began in verse 21, Paul says to us there in that verse that we are to submit to one another in the fear of Christ. And I believe that instruction applies to marriage as well. And mutual love within a marriage looks like a lack of bitterness for one another. From 1 Peter chapter 3, just to turn our minds again to what this thought of loving one another in marriage looks like. 1 Peter chapter 3, beginning at verse 1. Peter writes here, In the same way you wives, and calling upon the example of Christ, and suffering, and, and being submissive. In the same way you wives, be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives, as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. Your adornment must not be merely external, braiding the hair and wearing gold jewelry or putting on dresses, but let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit which is precious in the sight of God. For in this way in former times the holy women also who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, being submissive to their own husbands, just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, And you have become her children if you do what is right without being frightened by any fear. You husbands in the same way. Live with your wives in an understanding way as with someone weaker or weaker vessel, some translations say, since she is a woman and show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life so that your prayers will not be hindered. Peter, I believe we can pull out of this text about true love. He tells us that true love between a husband and wife, again, looks like submission. It looks like having the character of God, that we're more concerned about what's on the inside, about who we really are, than what is on the outside. He's addressing these instructions to a woman, to a wife. But it can be true for those who are husbands, men, that we can be so concerned or too concerned about our outward appearance or our fleshly body and just not paying any attention to our soul, our spirit. He says to us that true love, at least what I get from this text, that true love between husband and wife looks like true spirituality. Again, that we're trying to be spiritually minded people, not fleshly minded people. It looks like obedience. 
It looks like understanding. It looks like honor. All of these words, I mean, could be sermons in and of themselves. I'm just giving you a broad overview this morning, and we're not getting into specifics. I'm giving you the principles and leaving it up to you to apply specifically to your marriage. But did you notice in all three of these texts, written to a different audience, two different authors, Paul and Peter, they're pretty much saying the same thing. One writer, a gospel preacher who's a a friend of mine, Curtis Pope, I think he's in uh, College Station, Texas, where uh, Jacob Hudgens uh, moved to work with him in that church. I wrote a number of years ago in a little book that I have for preachers, uh, a chapter entitled The Preacher as a Husband, and he said this. He said, real men love their wives, not just by a word here and there or by a present every third year, but by a selfless love that submits your happiness to that of your wife. Gospel preachers, he went on to say, and I would include elders, shepherds in a local congregation, should lead the way in loving their wives in this Christ-like manner. And I believe that's exactly right. And I think that that's what these three texts and many others that we can consider this morning are telling us. This is what true love for one another looks like. It's not just saying those words. Yes, that's, that's good for us to say those words as husbands and wives that I love you or, or for me and Anna to text that to each other during the day when I'm at work and she's at home uh, with kids and school and everything. A selfless love, husbands, that submits our happiness to that of our wife. Yes, Ephesians 5.22 says, Wives, submit to your own husbands. And this passage here in 1 Peter chapter 3 says, Wives are to be submissive to their own husbands. I'm not discounting that at all. But I believe in marriage that is truly meaningful. There has to be mutual submission. And we as husbands must submit our will in many instances to that of our wife to do what is best for her. Though it may be a rare sight to see in our time when husbands and wives love one another as Christ loved us, we will have a marriage that is meaningful. Thirdly and finally and very quickly, we need to show love for one another. Although marriage is certainly about mutually loving God, and mutually loving one another, if that is all that our marriage is about, then I would suggest to you that we're not going to truly have a meaningful marriage as God intends for us to have. Because in order for our marriages to truly be full of real meaning, we must use that relationship that God has blessed us with to love our neighbors as ourselves. What what does that look like in our marriages? Again, to give you some principles, to go to the book of Galatians Galatians chapter 5 at verse 13, Paul writes here, For you were called to freedom, brethren, only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word in the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And then from Galatians 6 and verse 10, probably a verse many of us know well also, Paul says here, so then while we have opportunity, let us do good to all people and especially to those who are of the household of the faith. I realize he doesn't use the word love there, but I certainly believe that concept of true biblical love, of putting the best interests of someone else above our own interests is inherent in this instruction. And so in our marriages as husbands and wives, not just individually as we are to love all 
people, to love our neighbor as ourselves, as individual Christians. But now we can do that as a team. And as husband and wife, as a couple that is trying to honor and please God, showing that we love God, we, we can be involved together in selfless service for others. We husbands should not just think, well, that's just a wife's work to do, <laughs> that she makes some you know, food and takes it to someone who is in need. Now, I'll tell, y'all, tell you that you don't want me making anything <laughs> for you. You want Anna to do that. But we can do that together. And we together can do good to all people, whatever that good might be, whether it's financially helping them out or providing them a place to live temporarily or giving them clothing or food or whatever it is. And as we do all of that together as a couple, we have an emphasis as Paul speaks of here in Galatians 6 and verse 10, especially to those who are of the household of the faith that we as husband and wife can pool our resources, our talents, our gifts that God has given us together and we can serve God's people. One of the best examples that I can think of from Scripture along these lines, when I think of a married couple who did all three, practice all three of these kinds of loves within their marriage, they loved God, they loved one another, and they loved their neighbor. I think about Aquila and Priscilla. There's not a whole lot that is said about this couple throughout the New Testament, but there is some things, and what is said about them I think is very significant. We learn from New Testament passages that Aquila and Priscilla as a team, as a married couple, they were fellow workers in the Lord. That's how the Apostle Paul often described them. That as a couple, they taught Apollos the way of God more perfectly. As a couple, they opened their house, a blessing that God had given to them to the, for the saints to meet in their house to worship God. As a couple, they showed hospitality to the Apostle Paul when he came to Corinth. In Acts chapter 15, to me it seems that as the New Testament talks about Aquila and Priscilla, that it always talks about Aquila and Priscilla. It always speaks of them together. That together they were loving God, they were loving each other. And they were loving their neighbor, their brethren as themselves. When we use our marriages to show love for other people, then I suggest to you that we will have a meaningful marriage. In our time of everything is about me, that, that idea, that, that concept, if we're not careful, can creep over into our marriages. And our marriage can start out as about us, but even then that falls short because our marriage ultimately ought to be about God. And then it's about us. And then it's about us serving God by serving others. Having a meaningful marriage is not only good for us if we are a married couple, but it is also good for our family, our children. It is good for our brethren. It is good for our neighbors. It is good for our nation. You know, there are multiple myriads of problems that are going on in our country and our world right now. And this may seem very simplistic and and naive to say something like this. But I really do believe that a lot of our problems could be solved if we would just go back to what God intended for us in the beginning. And one of those great things that he intended for us to be a blessing to us 
is that one man and one woman would enter into this relationship of marriage for life. When our marriage fulfills the true purpose for which God created it, we will proclaim his will to all. We want to talk about how we can be evangelistic. There's a number of ways we can do that, brothers and sisters. But if we are married, our marriage is preaching a message to the world. And what kind of, marriage, what kind of message are we preaching? If you are a married person or you are thinking about marriage, you're about to enter into marriage soon. Let me just ask you this morning as we close, do you have a meaningful marriage? But regardless of whether you're married to another individual or not in this life, you need to be married to Christ. So what about that this morning? Are you a follower of Jesus Christ? Have you joined yourself to Christ? He is a perfect partner, if I can use that word. He is a perfect head. He will never let you down. He will never lead you down the wrong path. And so if you're not a Christian this morning, we would encourage you to seriously consider that and to act upon that. As we're about to sing this song that has been selected as a song of invitation and encouragement, if you need to respond to the Lord's invitation in any way at all, we would encourage you to do that now as we stand and as we sing.